Okay, so we're recording here the intro to uh, episode 7. Yeah. Matt, it's uh, Searching for Fauna and Flora. Um, like we mentioned in the episode, that's another uh, left-field musical reference. Yes. More, less than a handful of people will get, but there we go. Um, did you enjoy the recording of this episode? <laughs> yeah, I did. The first maybe like half of it was a bit of a struggle to get through, but we, I feel like we kind of made up for that with yeah. the, the later content. Yeah, I think in fairness, actually, we managed to make a, a good deal of entertaining content out of uh, weeds and grasses. But yeah. um, which brings me on to the structure of this episode. I might as well outline it at the start. Um, we actually kind of set some context for like nature and biodiversity in the Loch Lomond side, which is quite impressive and. We talk about climate, I guess it's sort of topical, but um, a good introduction to the sort of topic as well, um, and some of the impacts of climate change. And then we go on to um, talk about flora. Yes. Um, any highlights in the flora section that people should look out for, Matt? Um, I like some of the names, the interesting names that we'd come across. They're um, a good laugh, I think. Yeah, some of them sound like potentially uh, strong band names, others sound like class B drugs. I, uh, I was actually just impressed, Matt, by your level of research, uh, going into uh, the details about why certain flora was growing in certain places. Uh, have you retained much of that information? Absolutely none of it. <laughs> because I've, been, I've obviously had to go back and listen, I've yeah. just kind of... But nah, not really. Yeah. I think it's because we're constantly researching, we're putting more information in our heads, so the stuff from before goes out of it. I think that's how it works. No psychologist, but I think that's how it works. And then we went on after Flora to talk uh, about, well, fauna, basically. Um, things like insects, fish, birds, mammals. Myself, well, I enjoyed much of this section of the podcast, but I think talking about Patrick the Bear and um, his bear pals on Cameron House grounds is quite entertaining. Um, any other things that you thought was entertaining from that section? There's a couple of good stories in it uh, relating to mammals, so they're yeah. something to look out for. Yeah, and that, um, yeah, on, on the topic of that section, um, yeah, we, we kind of struggle at certain points to, to describe certain terms and characteristics. Uh, we're not biologists, so you'll hear us say stuff like the children fish go down the stream uh, I wouldn't make a good fish and uh, I forgot to look up a porpoise before this again what is it, a seal? Um, so, but I think by the end of the episode we, we're learning alongside the listener maybe hopefully um, another quick uh, apology is um, around the 6-7 minute mark I've, I've noted that there's a bit of wind but don't worry, that's uh, temporary I think. Um, there's also another noise disturbance here, Matt. That was the... The chainsaw. Chainsaw. That was a bit scary. But um, l- luckily, Matt and I were not being chased. We're not quite in the full post-apocalyptic uh, period yet. Um, that chainsaw was, again, only quite sporadic. But uh, somebody was really going at a tree, I think. Hopefully, just a tree. And, uh, yeah, I've put apology here, because um, apparently I've only used three different descriptions uh, for animals. Fat ugly and or like a weasel um, or some combination of those so Matt I've also said that you need to apologise for describing a Scottish wildcat as a fat hairy house cat yeah it um, seemed appropriate but 
not really allowed to say that. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, um, so we encourage you to. <laughs> we encourage you to use these evocative descriptions alongside your imagination to accurately picture these majestic animals. And um, I think, uh, Matt, would you maybe like to do these final apologies? Well, I'll not spoil it, but I'd like to apologize. Well, I don't know if I need to apologise for it, but I probably, seeing as I'm the one that brought it up, should uh, just to the, the animals that are involved in this story. A couple of stories, yeah. There's um, involving a Pringles tin and uh, what somebody we know being covered head to toe in blood. Um, so, yeah, um, listen out for that. And um, yeah, nothing else to say really, I think, other than uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast, you bunch of untaxidermied weasels. Matt and I have just started our entertainment corner of the podcast, and this week we're talking about coach journeys. We've concluded that, um, although very cheap, probably not worth the money, coach holidays, sorry. Yeah, a coach holiday, I don't know. I've had plenty of experience of them through my work and they look terrible. There's no other way. Basically, you've got a cheap price for the week and the coach getting carted about different places, but problems you've highlighted are you're going to get stuck with quite a limited clientele. Yeah, especially like, I don't think me or you would have much in common to talk about with the the rest of the clientele, they're usually significantly older. Right, right, right. Um, you might visit some nice places, but I guarantee you're going to stay in some shit holes. There's no chance you're getting a cheap holiday and staying in a nice hotel. See, that for me was what I thought was going to be the, the good bonus, is that you could stop off in nice little pubs, but in reality you're probably going to be in a tea room or a hostel or something. Yeah, like um, yeah. Just rather sit at home and catch up with Baywatch. Yeah. Here comes navigation skills. Oh yeah, here we go. It's a bridge. I do want to walk across it, but last time we walked across a bridge, we were led up a snowy mountain with absolutely no trail. Yeah, um, that does just look like it goes back. Yeah, it's maybe going to get across that right now. Where are all my pals, the wooden red posts? Uh, Where are they? Um, I do appreciate a simple bridge. Any. Well, idea. So, I think that's where we came down. There. Mm-hmm. So we'll need to turn right at some point anyway. Aye. Because the trail's meant to take you down, like right down to the water. Right. Well, let's uh, just follow this. Follow this for a bit. Good thing is we're not kind of high up a mountain. We're getting lost. We're yeah, we and can I'm see like, houses as well, which is good. Uh, we're right next to the road as well, so plenty. Yeah. Follow the road back. Well, uh, might as well start, Matt. I guess yeah. I'll get my, my notes up. Um, we're walking near uh, Arikar uh, by Ardgarten Hotel, and um, we thought it'd be a, a nice little walk to record the podcast. Uh, this episode, which is searching for fauna and flora, we are. Maybe again, uh, quoting a song that nobody will know. Um, second reference to that song by Aidan Moffat and R.M. Hubbard. Car song. Worth a listen if no one's Worth heard. a listen. Um, there we go. That's why we like to make the... That's an example of how we like to make the podcast accessible. Um, by quoting really, really niche... Really niche. Lyrics from niche songs by niche artists. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, the, obviously the focus of the podcast is kind of looking at, really, ecology, animals and plants. And I know what you're thinking, that's a big topic. Um, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's good. The, the last couple have been quite lengthy affairs, but... Yeah, I, I'd probably prefer not as long a... <laughs> I think the listeners probably prefer less than an hour of fucking rambling as well. Yeah, well, we'll make it entertaining as always and um, we can promise tales uh, of um, interesting um, serpents people like serpents we're always going to refer to serpents in this podcast any Uh, opportunity any opportunity Um, bears Um, native or not native or not but um, bears on the run what other fun things are we talking about Uh, wild cats yeah a few stories relating to um, a person we know and their relationship <laughs> with animals. Oh my God, yeah, We're, we have got a great story for this uh, episode well, as well. Two, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, trigger warning: there is cruelty towards animals involved. Yeah, but there's well, not yeah. We're not perpetrating it as the most important thing. We're just talking about it in a way to try and bring it to people's attention. And it's also just fucking mental stories. It's a mad story as well. So um, there's that, and. Um, you know, um, for some reason, I decided to dedicate a lot of my notes to describing what animals look like, uh, when and basically everything looks like a weasel is what I've determined. Yes. Um, so there's that um, ecological insight for all of you. Um, I do believe I uh, created an introduction here. Um, so um, we're actually walking past a very stately. Is this the Ardgarten Hotel? That is. is that? But that's, this is where the coach thing comes. This in. is where the coaches are. one. Which Do you know them? Nah Well I mean no of them But I don't know them personally We're walking behind it And there is in fairness An absolutely wonderful vista Looking on to um, Loch Long Loch Long Um, Because that's how Arica kind of sits North of Loch Long Very short drive from Loch Lomond From Tarbet There's actually a good walk That can be done From uh, Tarbet to Arica as well Yeah the King Hacking Walk The King Hacking Walk previously referenced um, so yeah apologies for the, the wind factor yeah, I was going to say maybe try and get some shield or something yeah. are we going to be quite exposed um, but it's an unbelievable day after what feels like fucking years of just fog and blizzard rain yeah the rain the past week what's that kind of what's the the week starting the what 9th of January was that yeah. Really bad week. Really, Not really a good poor. week to work in a boatyard either, Matt. As no. You testify. Had um, water pouring in over the top of my wellies. Did not have a smile on my face at any point during the week. It's not what the listeners would want want to hear, Matt. Hopefully your feet are dry for the foreseeable. Um, so yeah, we're um, meanwhile in my cushy home office and cafes. Um, I've been okay. Feet. feet. Gonna, have you not had wet feet? Dampness wise, no. Luckily, there's been no flooding in the, the hipster coffee, uh, coffee zones of Edinburgh, which I sometimes frequent. But yeah, it's really is a wonderful view. But it's actually on this uh, lawn, the back garden of the Ardgarten Hotel, is strewn with the shells of mussels. And I'm assuming it was not the result of a banquet, but it was in fact um, a natural occurrence, perhaps. Um, maybe something to do with the birds. Which are uh, feasting on the shores yes. as we speak. 
Um, and we'll be talking about all of that on the podcast. Uh, the cobbler is looking imperious to our right. So everything's covered in snow. Everything is snow capped, and there's fantastic um, coniferous uh, trees, which we will also reference. Very tall and mighty. Right, Matt, we've walked around in a circle yes, around this building. So, where do we go? Is that. Do we, is there a path there? What's going on? Shall we try going left at some point? Aye. Is that. Or, I mean, is that, is that path? So, that's the road there. I think we've walked. Aye, and we turn back. I think we do, mate. I think we just turn back. Maybe we can go off trail for a wee bit, but aye. Um, Our strong navigational skills are coming into play again. Yeah, coming into play once more. Um, So yeah, written here in my intro, the lock has exceptional diversity in both flora and fauna and funga. Uh, the three F's. I'm just, flora is all things, as far as I'm aware, plant. Yeah. Uh, fauna is all animals. Um, and fungi is fungi. Self-explanatory. There you go. Um, we're probably not going to... Well, I say this, but you actually did write quite a lot in it. We're, we're not uh, going to go into too much... I didn't do that much on plankton. Actually, I've done right. very little because... Uh, I did the reading and to be honest it's boring as hell Yeah, I mean I think, well, obviously there will be people out there who are really interested in we've already talked about the sedge specialists and the people are really interested in their water invertebrae but um, we are not going to go into huge chat about that, feel free to dig into that in your own yeah, time Yeah, I mean, we said we were going to try and make this interesting and I think spending yeah. 15 minutes talking about plankton yeah. isn't very interesting Is that a bird? Yeah, it looks like a heron or something. Right, sitting in the middle of the field. So, yeah, I, I think I, I wanted to start this off by talking a bit about climate. Um, so, the wildlife here is obviously really impacted by um, the weather and the, as well as the landscape. Um, Loch Lomond is at the same latitude as Moscow, Russia and Edmonton, Canada. But um, its climate differs greatly from the two of them, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's a lot wetter here. Yeah. But yeah, I think it'll be a lot colder. It's the influence of the Atlantic Oceanic climate on the Scottish western seaboard. Um, so we walk towards a man with a tripod camera interpreting the, the place in his own form of media through the media of imagery and not of audio. But yeah, there's not much snow here in comparison to those places we mentioned. There's a lot more rain and there's a lot more wind, as you can probably hear. Um, and the temperatures, we, we mentioned that temperate sort of cold temperate zone, the temperatures don't vary too much from winter to summer. Um, I'm actually walking past this relic building that we passed before. Yeah. And um, we've got a picture in it, I think, Matt. We've, yes. we've styled it as our podcast studio. But it's an old abandoned stone sort of it's like house. Probably. It's very cool actually. Um maybe big. two houses. Yeah, maybe two. I don't know how at least a couple of hundred years old, that's for sure. Um but uh yeah, um 
the temperatures in, in this area they, they, they don't vary too much so from, from winter there's a average four and a half degrees centigrade temperature in December says here and summer there's 14 and a half degrees centigrade um, for our potential American listeners just find out yourself for that as a well, I think place. Canadians certainly I think they use Fahrenheit in the summer and Celsius in the winter do they? aye weird don't understand it but not for me um, not the way about either way they, they use one for six months and another one for another six one thing that I did find out about the temperature and the book that is much of this information comes from for me, from my side, is again the bold John Mitchell's Loch Lomond side. Um, by the way, I would love to speak to John Mitchell if he's still alive. If you're out there, John, get in touch. Um, because uh, I think he lives in Drummond. I did a bit of stalking oh, on the internet, he? aye. But we can go meet him in the Clacken for a pint as well. We can, yeah. We have a hopefully upcoming interview uh, in the Clacken uh, at some point. Um, but um, yeah, so but we've mentioned this in the first episode actually. Um, the incredible tectonic geography of the area. Yes. Um, you know the the, the the hills, the mountains, the convergence of the lowlands and the highlands means that there is actually a radical variation in temperature at any given. Uh, time or day uh, between some areas and there's a good example here given by Mr Mitchell and he talks about the drop in temperature from Den and Car Park by the lock um, up to um, the top of Ben Lomond which as a crow flies is only three miles um, can drop as much as seven degrees centigrade and that's only like uh, how long does it take to walk up there? A couple of hours. A couple of hours so it's pretty wild um, there's a lot of variation in the and that temperature and there's a lot of variation in the, uh, the wildlife as well. Um, last point on, on climate, um, talking about the climate crisis as it's been recently remodelled and um, yeah, unfortunately Matt, it looks like things are going to get cloudier and wetter. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't think it could get any cloudier and wetter, but apparently I've been disproved, which isn't actually that uncommon. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just looking at anecdotal evidence, yeah, um, for myself as well. Um, unfortunately, it might get cloudier and rainier, and um, we expect some species, uh, some highland species especially, to come into a bit of bother because of the drop in sunlight associated with that, and also the drop in protective snow cover. Yeah, but, it's, you know, there was no like permafrost left in Scotland, so like really, there's yeah. certain you know bits that will it will snow and then it's well because um, it's hidden, you know, yeah. sheltered it stays. But I, I think the last of that's. Yeah. Away, so well, hopefully, oh God, yeah, use this as a, uh, a call to action. Hopefully, to try and do something about this. Eh? Um, yeah, that's passing another lovely little house, but more modern, contemporary. But it's a little pink house or red porch. Looks abandoned, Matt. Mm. Um, but very nice. Um, again, just next to the Art Garden Hotel car park kind of area. I'm going to have to take a pause to, to, to warm my paws because it is very cold. One second. Right, so Matt, we've uh, warmed our hands somewhat and yeah. we're uh, now up a track. We've reverted to not following any path whatsoever, discernibly. That's not what's going to happen. Usually what happens anyway, so... Um, well experienced. And we are uh, surrounded by trees, which is the topic of the first section of Flora, and that's a segue, for all of you who don't know. Um, so, uh, some stuff, some, some, some stuff uh, context about trees uh, in this area. By the beginning of the, the second millennium, Matt, um, which uh, is... Um, 
That's actually not true. I meant to say the first, first millennium, millennium AD. Yeah, the second millennium's not. That's that's the eleven ten hundreds onwards, right? Mm. Sorry, there you go. Um, first clanger. It's, uh, it's the oxygen levels up in this moderately <laughs> high hill. It's just affecting my brain, obviously. Um, yeah, the beginning of AD, right? Um, Bronze Age and then Iron Age peoples had already left a bit of a dent on the forest, uh, forests of uh, the area. Um, in the native woodlands um, and then the Romans came in after that and really had a go at it for those of you who aren't aware wood is very important for humans um, uh, back in the day Kranix which we've uh, uh, talked about um, a bit already boats weapons tools nice wee bowls and cups you name it they were all made from wood somewhat and um, Loch Lomondside timber is kind of over even into more modern history, sort of attached itself to uh, repute and um, was actually used in both the 1500s and 1990s restorations of Stirling Castle's halls. Yeah, I think um, interesting. a lot of timber used for boat building around the 1500s in Dumbarton as well. Multi use. And I think we'll touch on it briefly, but um, there's a lot of um, stuff attached to the early kings of Scotland and their planting of woodland for like uh, creating, like, you know bows and weapons and stuff basically for so a lot of the trees planted were actually you know for um they weren't maybe the ancient woodland they were planted by by um aristocrats and kings and whatnot um so uh, a note here about um a small number of natural trees left um matt or oh, actually let me cover a quick point um just about the kind of industry around the woods um uh, charcoal is a product of wood and that did become very important um, in the sort of history surrounding woodland in this area um, especially for iron forging so I found that out as well um, and we'll actually talk more about industry in one of our later episodes yeah, when I was doing a bit of research that Glasgow Uni Press book that's got like a use of land and there's a lot to do with wood in that but I thought leave that for a later episode because we are going to cover it and um Anything on uh, the natural trees left, Matt? So yeah, there's very few number of natural trees left, you know, that were native to this area. Um, but they mainly occur on the east bank of the loch. Um, so kind of for where different trees live. Uh, there's a car, a car and a hound in front of us, man. Do you not know I'm trying to record a fucking podcast here? Um, um, yeah, so a lot of the trees in Loch Lomond are oak trees and they occur in acidic soil, usually on a, some kind of slope. And uh, underneath the, the trees, there's usually flora, including honeysuckle, uh, mm. ling and heather. But um, some of the grounds that these trees are on are grazed by animals, so the shrubbery usually isn't actually that prevalent as uh, it just gets eaten by wee animals so usually yeah they become rare and if there's areas where animals aren't grazing then there's shrubs underneath oaks such as holly and young birch but under these conditions usually it would be a, a sessile oak okay. um, but there's very few pure species of these left and it's mainly crossed with to make a hybrid with the more southern species the pin, pidunculus 
Pedunculate oak. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, the main reason for this uh, mixture of oaks is probably due to reforestation of deciduous woods during the 18th century. And during this time, there was a lot of. Uh, well, I just wait till. <laughs> a very impressive waterfall we're walking past here. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of um, English oak seeds imported in the 18th century and these were crossed with a small number of sessile oaks that were left in the area. And then when there's, a, there's less acidic soil and the ground's more undulating as opposed to straight and steep, um, you get bluebells in the trees that the canopy trees in this area is usually uh, oak or birch, birch trees. And an example of this is if you go to Inch Kylock, there's a lot of oak and birch trees and in the middle, hundreds of bluebells. Right. And then in locations such as Arake, Moore and Craig, Rawson, there's a lot of mineral rich soil in the oak woodlands. Um, so they, again, the ground flora changes because of this. Yeah. And the shrubs are usually either hazel or blackthorn. Blackthorn cider, do you ever drink that? No. no. Um, it was attached to a, a Glasgow club of, Yeah. Uh, at one point, wasn't it, as a sponsor? And um, it had. Uh, but I also, somebody also once said to me, because I think at one point I had a bit of a, a bammy image, but. What, Blackthorn? I, yeah, I think it was like kind of cheaper than Strongbow right. cider. Somebody tell me that it was actually a version of it, which was all right or something. I can't remember. Maybe it is a higher quality cider, yeah, it's just uh, sold for cheaper, but I don't really see if that's. Maybe we can, we can do a live tasting or something. Maybe like that. we could. Yeah, Blackthorn cider. Um, so yeah, in this area, or these areas, usually the, the trees are oak, but um, elm and ash are also present. Yeah. And uh, there's a oak and elm cross occurs usually in woodlands, uh, and a number of ravines running down from the hills on both sides of the loch. If you'd like to hear some more about trees, I can <laughs> I can continue. Well, there's some stuff about water content here, Matt, and I'm yeah. going to suggest we skip over it briefly. That's fine, because um, I mean, it's not really that... Uh, <laughs> some stuff in conifer plantations excluded, other woodlands uh, are limited to small areas. So yeah, just a, a quick um, note on, uh, as I said earlier, um, it's kind of kings and the connection to the trees. There is a quite a famous yew tree between... Um, Inverbeg and Tarbit, which we're very close to now, was um, apparently sheltered in under by uh, King Robert the Bruce. Um, before he became a king of Scotland, he was hunted as an outlaw. Um, perhaps like us, pursued by a seat car um, on the road. Um, but no, uh, it was said that on the run from his pursuers in the early 14th century, he crossed Loch Lomond with 200 men and sheltered under the ancient yew tree at, here we go, a bit of Gaelic, Stuck and Tiver. Would that be a THR? Does that, that make a V? a V? Yeah. yeah. But I thought, so it's <laughs> Stuck and Tiver. Okay. Cool. Sounds... A place translated as the Hill of the Sacrifice. Okay. So maybe Google that instead. Um, but yeah, you can still see this tree. Apparently, it's, I think it's like kind of maybe... Dying or deed, some sort of zombie tree, I'm not sure. But it's still quite, I think I read somewhere that it was six metres in girth. Oh, so if big. you're a fan of girth, that's definitely the place to go. Um, plants, plants now, plants, yeah, yeah. things that aren't trees, is the next section. 
Um, we've talked a little bit about some uh, shrubbery already, but these are things that are plants. Um, so, <laughs> a large percent of the plant species found in Loch Lomond are found throughout Great Britain. So that's fact. a categorise like one categorisation, and then yeah. there's three other categorisations to follow. Cool. Um, would you like to describe them? Yeah. So the first one's a Western categorisation or oceanic, and these plants tend to prefer high rainfall or humidity, which west coast of Scotland is perfect for. And yeah, they're usually confined to the west coast of Britain. So examples of this include pale butterwort and uh, hemlock water dropwort as well. Some real names here, isn't there? Um, they get worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next two groups that are categorisations is split into northern and southern plants and these kind of overlap on Loch Lomond side, I think that's kind of due to the, yeah. the temperature. So, for example, for a, a 10 degrees Celsius isotherm average minimum temperature, <laughs> there's a lot of fucking silly words in that, <laughs> um, through July, which is the main period for setting seeds, and this cuts through the southern end of the loch. Okay. So, if a species is not able to survive in a summer temperature, lower than this, they reach the northern end of the range. Yeah. And yeah, this makes up the southern e elements of flora in the log side. And then the northern ones is the opposite. So if they, you know, can survive yeah. under 10 degrees Celsius, then usually they're reaching the southern edge of the range. Yeah. I suggest we go into some global statistics around these species, Matt. And uh, it said, the stats gathered a while ago, um, said that Loch Lomond side featured 4.5% of southern species, 15% of western species, and 22.5% of northern species uh, present in Great Britain. Um, apparently these generalisations are controversial, Matt. Yeah, apparently it's due to one reason being the possible absence of habitats that are suitable outside a plant's current range. It's like, well surely that's pretty obvious, like I don't really... Yeah. It's not con that's not a controversial opinion. Uh, and then the second one's... Um, because the last ice age is relatively not actually right. that long ago, uh, some plants might not have kind of had the chance to re-establish themselves. Okay. That's their own fault though, because everyone else has managed to do it, so. <laughs> yeah, Hiya. Um, and talking about end ranges, Matt, um, yes. my, my hands have again reached out end ranges. You're cold, feet, yep, cool. So I put them back in my pockets for a period of time. Yeah, as you said, Matt, we have reached our range at the end of this path. Two nice little homes on the very close shore of Loch Long. And uh, we're going to have to walk back. But, um, yeah, continuing on from where we left off. Um, I've got some other plant finds written down here. There's a lot of things about weeds and sedge and grasses in these books, but one thing I highlighted here was the Loch Lomond Dock, which is an example of a rare kind of plant um, found in the marshes. Loch Lomond, Balmahar marshes to be specific. It's the only kind of northern water dock found in Britain, apparently. Um, and the, the, near, the nearby Endrick marshes um, big GM sites as a real treasure trove of wildlife um, and he recommends a pot a wee walk down from the river from Balfron Bridge um, and uh, to, to, to check it out have you, have you frequented Balfron much in your time? 
Me? No. The only time. Where was it? Mind we get lost? Out that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like. That guy told us to go in a certain direction, we followed his instructions and ended up. It's like. Where the fuck are we? Uh, well, no, it was kind of driven, but it was walking out towards where we started and driven, we ended up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think one of our pals had turned up in the same clothes he'd been in the night before. That's right, yeah. that was funny. Uh, that was a particularly rough period for him. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, and it's just, you know, uh, some interesting examples as well in these books about the impact that humans have had from quite an early point on on wildlife and um, an example of the impact of humans in water sport on the loch wildlife um, was in that Mitchell book and he said that Balmaha Bay, which is very popular just, just as you drive in off the main car park it had its water surface all powdered white with the flowers of water crowfoot but basically propeller boats put an end to that said, <laughs> this is another interesting thing I think we you put some stuff in the notes about hedgerows and stuff maybe, Matt, but um, or kind of flora around, you know, fields and stuff. But there's a bit in this book about hedgerow flora and particularly that and the side of roads. And uh, But it's kind of... Uh, that kind of wildlife has dwindled over the years as more sort of industrial road surfacing took place. And there's a, there's a quote here from a travel writer from the 18th century, which I think would be a very different job to that today without your Instagram. Nah, yeah, exactly. Um, so... But he was going through the Vale, Matt, as all great travel writers do. Lucky him. <laughs> and um, he said that um, observing the hedgerows by the, the main road, Lush Road in the Vale, said, Beautiful hedges bound the road, which in the season of summer are finely interwoven with the wild rose, honeysuckle and other sweet-smelling plants. Do you recognise that from your own street, Matt? Uh, no. <laughs> um, change days. Change days, but... There are some ancient roadside verge flora that you can check out. Probably closer to Gartaharn and beyond on the east side, at least, anyway. And, uh, yeah, he gives... Uh, John Mitchell gives countless examples of rare flora existing on and around the lock, including Royal Fern, quote, fine species of plant, but he's described it as being driven to near extinction by the, quote, again, rapacious fern dealers and collectors. To, yeah. think, to think, Matt, that we were singing and dancing our way through life, ignorant of the knowledge of this frightening, dark underbelly of society, of the fern collectors. Well, I think they must be extinct by now. I don't know anyone who's collecting a fern, but maybe the not. collectors themselves went extinct? Yeah, yeah, not the ferns, the, the collectors. Cruel, ironic twist of fate. <laughs> That's what you get, though, I guess. Yeah, what goes around comes around. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts, as we said to Derek McInnes today. Um, <laughs> So, mountain flora, Matt. Would you like to talk about mountain flora for a short period of time? Yeah, well, I'll try and make this as quick as possible. I've actually written so much on all of these, and I don't know why. I've, yeah. I was trying to do a good thing, and I've done a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> all the good intent, Matt. I'm sure we can all agree. Yeah. So, uh, mountain flora tend to grow on exposed hills uh, and thin soils and generally poor condition for a close growing. Some of the names I liked are uh, Heath <laughs> Bedstraw, which great, sounds like... Great biology here. <laughs> which sounds like a children's book, yeah. like a character. And then another one was Arctic Club Moss, oh. which sounds like a type of diff diff music. It does, it also kind of sounds a bit like uh, a gangster in like a Terry Pratchett. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so wedges on the, the cliffs and, or rock falls that are inaccessible to sheep and goat, which usually graze them, right, right. Uh, tend to have tall herb vegetation because obviously it's not been eaten away by the wee minxes. Um, and then plants found in the uh, ledges are also usually found at lower altitudes, uh, but I've, the names were boring, so I'm not going to talk about them. Well, you did find some cliff edge vegetation names that are quite good. Yeah, so there's the the rose root, which sounds pretty dirty. Uh, Vernal Sandwort, he also sounds like a, yeah. a, a character from my kid's book. We've got Alpine Clinique Foil, right. which sounds like a cosmetic cream. And then <laughs> Hoary Whitlow Grass, which sounds like a Daily Mail headline. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, and then on slopes on the hillsides below 2,000 feet is the moorland grasslands. Moorlands tend to be in drier, well-drained sites. Yeah. Um, yeah, accompanied by bell heather, blaeberry, crowberry and cloudberry, all of which sound like a class B drug. <laughs> Not that we would, yeah. Anyway. Not that I know anything about that, but... Um, yeah, interesting. Right. Um, and there's a shout out to Bog Myrtle here. Yeah. <laughs> steeper and wetter sites. And um, the grasslands uh, are pal sedge. The, the ribbed. The ribbed sedge. The ribbed sedge. Gosh. Only if you're experienced. So it says here as well, there's surprisingly few areas of peats around Loch Lomond restricted to the hills uh, to the east and west of the loch. But the flatter plateau north of Ben Lomond and the hills around Luss usually have bog moss. Apparently. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, the only other kind of place with significant peat is uh, Inchmoan, uh, which I don't know, I think we've probably touched on before. Folk from Lush using that as a source of peat fuel. Uh-huh, yeah. um, so yeah. We talked about that in the um, Islands episode, over there. probably. Yeah, Islands yeah. episode, well, yeah. Well, yeah, so it's another link. And there is a lot of chat of marshland and that's diversity, biological diversity in these these uh, sources and um, there are some details here about marshland and the, the biological impact and the, the factors which arise which um, you know create different types of flora. I'm going to glance past most of this Matt. That's okay. Take an editorial decision here and it's really really um, but in the topic of uniquely enriched soils Inch, right at the centre of the Loch's southern basin. Um, the island deserves a special mention for its magnesium and calcium rich soils, which feature um, lush ground flora, apparently. There's se- several lo- uh, locally uncommon plants to be found there, such as wood goldilocks and soft shield fern. There you go. I would imagine this is a great podcast to fall asleep to at <laughs> this point. Um, there's some stuff here, Matt, on littoral veg, which is yeah. uh, vegetation which is not literal but Li- is it literal? Literal? Be- I don't know. I don't know. Is there anything to be said about literal veg? <sighs> Basically, it just grows. It's kind of like when you're going into the water, so right, right. Yeah, it usually grows in kind of gravel and bays. But I think once you get over like four meters or something in depth, not enough sunlight gets through. So cool. that's kind of. And um, after this episode, what do you intend to do with that knowledge? <laughs> Put it in the bin. <laughs> Um, My brain can only like, <laughs> hold on to so much information yeah, at once. Yeah. I need to get rid of stuff if I want uh, you. I should. There are tales of bears escaping national parks in a bit here. Okay, so just just stick <laughs> in with us for a second, right? So it says here, Matt. It, you know, geography, topography, and climate are the main reason in deciding the distribution of flora. Yes. And there are a few species that are uh, characteristic of or signature to human intervention. Spruces, silver, and Douglas fir 
beech, sycamore, pestilential rhododendron well and, and some other hornbeam which grow in Aber Isle are all introduced species. Um, and there are some species which have disappeared. Wood, cow, wheat and pillwort. Yeah, and again, this is kind of, as you touched on, I think the reason for that is down to folk collecting plants. Plant collectors. In the Victorian period. Interesting. Between the gameskeepers and the plant collectors, the gamekeepers we'll come on to in a bit, uh, they seem to have eradicated a good good bit of the flora and the fauna, haven't they? Yeah. Which brings Very us prolific. which brings us on to the fauna, Matt. Can't wait. And uh, we're going to begin with, uh, again, we'll get a quick section on insects, but very, very quick. I've only got two, two notes on this. Um, so compared to most large lochs, Loch Lomond has in its shallow and enriched southern basin an abundant bottom-dwelling invertebrate fauna uh, sector, supporting the larval stages of fun-named insects like the dancing midgey. That's what I've written here. And in the north, um, the phallic, um, the river running into the loch, has calcium-poor waters that in, apparently inhibit most mollusks, except, interestingly, the freshwater peril mussel. I didn't know that, there was peril fishers doing their thing in that part, but now apparently it's protected. Um, but if you're looking for a peril, you know where to go, the River Phallic, up at the Killing Fields. Uh, <laughs> my brother used to uh, name the town of Killing, where he uh, purports to have scored a goal or two on the... Hallowed. At what age? <laughs> I think under, his most prolific years was when he was 10 years old because he was twice the size of the other children. Um, that video yeah. you showed me when he is literally just like a 15 year old playing against 6 year olds. That's what free plates of pastel day will do for you, Matt. Um, next up, fash. Fish, as other people call them. And other water animals. I've put here in brackets so I can sandwich in references <laughs> to other things um, to fit the structure. Um, Loch Lomond has the widest variety of indigenous and introduced fish found in any freshwater body in Scotland. Native species include Atlantic salmon, yum, the rare pound, pike, perch, sea and brown trout, thick lipped mullet. Thick lipped <laughs> That's hard to what, say. What a brilliant name. <laughs> and ten spined stickleback. And the last couple I mentioned purely for sonic reasons. Um, yeah, most of these fish are found uh, around the southern end of the loch. So there are greater deposits of sediment for bottom feeding animals, which they, the fish prey on. Uh, the three main enemies fish encounter are lampreys, which hooks themselves on like a parasite and suck blood. Great. Yeah, and um, pike, which are quite vicious yeah, fish eating teeth. fish, yeah. aren't they? Um, scary bastards. They could possibly be human eating fish, not like full, but Oofed. maybe take a finger off or something. Jesus. Yeah, they are scary. Um, and they're cormorants, which are birds, which we'll come on to in a second. Birds. Um, B U R D S. <laughs> yeah. Um, flying, actual flying birds we're talking about here. Um, not the colloquial expression for women. A lot of uh, fish migrate from the loch to various, um, or two various streams and yeah, rivers. Yeah, so I think they kind of. They, what happens is they'll swim up the Leven from the Clyde into the loch and then I think they kind of they lay eggs or whatever fish and then I think the the small children fish they uh, <laughs> stay the st <laughs> yeah the children fish uh, spend a few or spend a year kind of feeding on smaller animals in the rivers and streams and then go back out to sea for a couple of years eat and then restart the process right um, so it's unknown how much feeding is done in the lot by adults 
Uh, they mainly survive on food reserves built up at sea. Interesting. How long do you reckon like, you could build up reserves for? Because I think I'd be about three hours and I'm like, well, I had a pack of crisps <laughs> 40 minutes ago and I'm absolutely ravenous already, so not very long. It wouldn't be a good fish. Um, in pre industrial days, um, there would actually be salmon. That's chainsaw again. Uh, yeah, I think Unbelievable, that's by the way. It's just rude now. No respect, right. In pre-industrial days, what I was trying to say, there would be salmon in the Clyde estuary map, believe it or not. Yep. And that would attract common porpoises. Now, I forgot to Google a porpoise again. It's in like my head, dolphin. it's like a seal or dolphin. It's like right? a dolphin, yeah. Okay, so not a seal or dolphin. No, but uh, very, it doesn't happen very often, but you do sometimes get uh, seals in the loch. But I think the last time there was one there, it got chased down to Dumbarton and some, like all the fishermen, just threw stones at it and tried to kill it. I think someone might have shot it. It's... Are we going to say that's characteristic of the people at Dumbarton, or...? Well, I think it was more anglers and the uh, Vale of Even and right. where go, so I... I think it's probably, yeah, slightly characteristic of folk in both the Vale and Dumbarton, I'm not going to... Yeah, well, I don't uh, tarnish one without tarnishing yeah, themselves. Yeah, we've already so. kind of had a few stabs at Dumbarton in the past, yeah, so I don't want yeah. to totally alienate them. There's enough, enough people there that would quite happily, violently address, <laughs> address the, those uh, slights. Um, so whales are also not completely unknown to the mouth of the leaven, um, apparently, because after becoming stranded in a sandbank at ebb tide, uh, a minke whale, uh, which has a Latin name I'm not going to uh, pronounce, was killed at the river mouth in June 1905. 90 years later, in February 1995, um, cetacean cetace, watchers had the opportunity of observing a humpback whale feeding on large shoals of small fish in the main navigation channel uh, below Dumbarton Castle. An unprecedented event in modern times, apparently. And apparently that's part of the fact that I guess the River Clyde's been kind of de-industrialised, hasn't it? Um, but uh, what about yeah. those... Was there not whales in Gearlock? Yeah, you sometimes you get... Aye, uh, because uh, it's like, that's obviously just off the Clyde, Clyde that's open to yeah. it, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, you do sometimes get some interesting uh, stuff up there. So yeah, cleaner waters means that the pleasures of sea angling and the tidal reaches of the river Leven are being rediscovered. Several estuarine species are now caught regularly, and particularly the thick-lipped mullet, recently mentioned, and pollock. But uh, the days of large shoals of herring making their way up river as far as Dumbarton uh, Key are long past. And just a note here, I think that speaks to kind of like uh, overfishing that's taken place, you know, for centuries basically. Yeah, I... And because um, I remember. Like, you know, hearing of anecdotes about, like, you know, historical anecdotes about how there used to be, like, massive shoals of herons swimming around the coast of Britain and loads and loads more sharks and whales and stuff like that. Um, but I think those days are kind of long gone because of overfishing, interestingly. But yeah, we then come on to, Matt, um, the animals operate outside of water, some of whom are mammals. Yes. Um, we're not going to cover humans in this, I guess we're just going to cover mammals. Um, other mammals? You've mentioned here, Matt, reindeer. Yeah, so reindeer antlers found near uh, Croft Army and remains of a wild boar excavated from Dumbuck Cranach. Uh, appear to be the only kind of archaeological evidence relating Loch Lomond to the dawn of history. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So the earliest documents refer to payment for clearance of wolves from Kilpatrick Hills. Glad there's not any wolves knocking about anymore. I think that would make life a lot more difficult. Yeah. Uh, challenging walk that already, up that hill sometimes <laughs> would be really struggling for wolf frustration. Although there's any scare I did was it with you? We went up there and there was no I think it was other people that went up Kilpatrick Hills and there was a guy swinging a bit of sword. 
Right, no, I wasn't there for that because I would 100% remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was a man swinging a sword about for Patrick, but that's it is very close to. Uh, I'm not going to mention it. I've already consulted it. So um, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, well, kind of relating to the same thing. The first authoritative records of mammals around Loch Lomond is called the Quadrupeds, okay. which I think might be a good band name. Yeah, great band name. Uh, yeah, so this was written by Reverend John Stewart. So I think he good was band name. Reverend John Stewart. <laughs> 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 Who needs Father John Misty when you've got exactly. Reverend John Stewart? So yeah, I think he was the in charge of the parish and like call version of Father John Misty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so at the time he claimed that there was uh, 21 species, three of which have disappeared. That includes the Pine Martin, Polecat and Black Rat, but we found out that actually yeah. Pine Martin's making a comeback. comeback. Yeah, so um nineteenth century saw a rise in natural history interesting. Um Led to discovery, I guess, of things like the pygmy shrew and Dobbington's bat. Oh, a great name as well. Yeah, I've got some more great bat names coming up, don't you worry. Um, but at the same time, agricultural and forestry development plus game preservation had a real impact in population changes of these animals. And today, there are 30-ish species, both native and established. I couldn't get a, just a straight answer on that, so right. I gave a, a ballpark. Fair enough, I'm sure people appreciate it. Um, so the aquatic life in Loch Lomond, especially the most recently introduced rough fish, it's a fish, um, not just making a sound like a dog, um, have provided a food source for everyone's favourite lake pup, the otter. Um, I've actually, for some reason, um, not mentioned the otter till later on, but I'll, I'll go straight to the otter. So um, otters require well-developed riverbank cover to lie up during the day, uh, safe and undisturbed. Trees at the water's edge with partially exposed roots are particularly favoured for otters' breeding dens and holts. Um, I think uh, Mitchell references the Endrick um, for otters, but um, looking at a map of a recent scientific paper, uh, it showed otter sightings all over the area, to be yeah, honest. Aye, pretty well distributed. Never seen an otter though. Yeah? No, but there's plenty of things I've never seen, it doesn't mean they don't exist. <laughs> but exactly. Yes, I could really go into detail there, but yeah, that's, that's true. So, I know, sadly, uh, I found out that the greatest threat to otters is actually cars. I didn't realise, but yeah. road mortality is apparently pretty bad for that's, otters. Uh, come on. Well, you've kind of stole my thunder a wee bit for later on, but it's, it's the same with hedgehogs. They, <laughs> really? You don't, Spoiler! Yeah, you don't, you don't get many hedgehogs in the area because they get hit by that cars too often. I've only ever seen dead hedgehogs. Sorry. Yeah. I saw that one we saw in the field, mind, when you lacerated your hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, that wasn't at the top of my mind after No, that. it wasn't. No, your hand was yeah, in a bad state. Anyway, there's also a, um, another similarly small mammal thing, is the mink. The North American mink, which was introduced for pelt farming in the 1930s. And um, they are a small, tiny little rodent-like animal. And unsurprisingly, they escaped the farm map. Yeah, they seem pretty aggressive as well. Like, yeah. they're not very, um, don't like sharing. No, and they fucking kill everything, apparently. So, um, including the little innocent water vole, which after not living with any real predator for a great amount of time in history, is now close to extinction, which is sad. Moving on to... Uh, the beaver, um, I thought I'd mention something quickly because when we were looking at this uh, trail today, Matt, I came across a news story on the great walkhighlands.com, which was about the reintroduction of the beaver, which is happening at Aberburn, uh, the nature reserve. Um, 
and uh, Donald Fraser, Nature Scott Head of Wildlife Management said beavers are ecosystem engineers and they play a very important role creating habitats, allowing other species to survive as well improving, uh, moderating water flows and improving water quality uh, a great agent of restoring biodiversity apparently so there you go, walk down from Garterharn to the shore to find some beavers and uh, yeah um, now, I don't know how I'm going to segue this, but I really need to shoehorn this story in about bears. Matt, um, is I mean, a, yeah. I'll just go for it. If we find a more appropriate way, we can maybe edit it right. so that it's relevant. I mean, this, just everyone needs to hear this. So, the, the, the kind of famous Cameron House Hotel and Resort, which uh, sits on Loch Lomond, which has had a very interesting history itself, uh, the hotel just alone, with uh, obviously like a tragic fire and other things happening, but for a number of years, um, the Cameron House or the site uh, was actually a safari park, Matt, and uh, it led <laughs> to a string of exotic escapes um, from skunks to brown bears. What would you rather uh, encounter? <laughs> it depends how big. I mean, I'm about to go into a specific bear who looks quite cute, but um, a skunk would also be problematic in some instances. I'd imagine if you're going to like a you know fancy ball or something like that after it, um, but. Uh, this is from the Scotsman. Um, in 1972, the owners decided to diversify their offering by opening the grounds of the, their ho stately estate to some truly grisly guests. Um, <laughs> it had been created in 1972 by Jimmy Chipperfield, whose family were also known for their circus um, business and uh, the introduction of animal parks to stately homes and estates elsewhere. Uh, Wonder if a wee business yeah. going on. I don't know if they're are they related to Blair Drummond or something as well. I don't know. Goodness knows. I don't know. I mean, this I didn't work out too well. <laughs> for almost 20 years, the Cameron Bear Park was a popular tourist attraction for families in the Western Bartonshire area, with its 32 varieties of Himalayan black and European bear and other animals, including the American bison, the Tibetan yak, and Highland cattle, before closing in 1990 uh, to make way for the current hotel. The um, the Highland cattle must have felt really boring in amongst that yeah. kind of. Uh, well, they must have felt very under threat from the bears. <laughs> I'm assuming. Surely they weren't keeping them together. <laughs> well, apparently the bears were allowed to roam freely. Fuck That's what I found out yeah, as well. So I don't have a clue what's going on, but there's lots of pictures of like the owner high fiving a bear and stuff. But um, there's a lovely picture here in a Daily Record article about it, and it's the Jimmy Chipperfield uh, posing with a tiny little baby bear called Patrick the Bear. Uh, whose name would have been a confounding prospect for both mass-attending Celtic fans and loyal Ranger supporters and men of the lodge and area. Indeed, the safari park was not a commercial success, reflected perhaps by this confusion around uh, the bears' um, proto um, Tim and uh, staunch name. And uh, all investors, including the owner, Patrick Telfer Smollett, a descendant of the Smollett's, um, went bankrupt before the land was given over to new developers who basically established a now uh, putable hotel and resort. And to stay quickly on the topic of parks, nearby Ballot Park has been a good example of how um, conservation has led to the slow resurgence of the red squirrel. I used to get red squirrels in my garden all the time oh, really? when I first moved there, so that was like 20-ish years ago. Yeah. And uh, no red squirrels anymore, all grey. Oh really? Well, you're, like, you're, in the, you're in the Vale, yeah. I see red squirrels oh. quite a lot Do in Ballot you? Park, yeah. Um, we now have some stuff, Matt, um, on moles, yep. rabbits, and brown hares. 
Yeah, so these are said to be the most commonly known mammals in the area. And uh, moles are obviously the most obvious because they just leave a mess everywhere they go. Pretty inconsiderate. And also, apparently the numbers have increased because there isn't professional mole catchers anymore, which I didn't... Sad and diamond in society, I, I didn't know that was a thing, but... Um, you don't know any mole catchers? I don't... Well, obviously not. They're all... <laughs> they're extinct as well. Uh, and my next point was about the hedgehogs, but we've already covered that. Basically, they're uncommon mainly because of road mortality. Malkied <laughs> by motors constantly. Yeah, sort of what you meant to do. Um, yeah, not uh, perhaps faring better with the cars slightly or rabbits, Matt. Yeah, well, they've got other problems to deal with. <laughs> uh, so apparently they were firstly introduced by the Normans in the 12th century, but it didn't appear in Loch Lomond until the 1820s, but they, they quickly colonised the place. Shooting and other forms of control didn't do much to kind of control the numbers, but uh, the, the first bout of myxomatosis, that didn't help them, and then the second one really, really caused some issues. So that was 1955 was the first uh, outbreak, and then 1957 was the second one which appears or apparently was a lot more detrimental to the numbers than the first so might not be getting hit by cars they're just getting real life-threatening diseases oh, I yeah. they'd be lucky you didn't catch that norovirus going around in the winter Matt that's all I'm saying uh, yeah. paid to many people's holidays including your good no, friend no here <laughs> exactly so uh, on to the topic of the similar hair what's the difference between a rabbit and a hair? is a hair maybe smaller? I don't I know I thought they were longer uh, maybe. Ah, know. who knows, really. I think, are they faster? Well, <laughs> famously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Although this is when someone comes back and says, actually, a rabbit's faster than a hare. <laughs> Matt just simulated spitting, if anyone would, uh, wants, wants to know. Just don't, if they are actually quicker, don't tell me. Don't, don't tell us. I was going to say, put your, put your views in the comments. But, um, don't. Um, severe, <laughs> on the hares, uh, severe laws uh, safeguarded brown hair um, in 1845 it says here Matt um, they were strictly preserved in the Buchanan grounds yeah. I'm assuming that was just for shooting purposes probably uh, probably I don't know um, during uh, the agricultural development period uh, the numbers increased um, but the ground game act of 1880 gave tenants equal rights to landowners when it came to killing game and uh, that affected them quite poorly the sale of hairs was prohibited by an act in 1892 um, they're now fairly common, but restricted usually to agricultural land south of Balmaha and Rostu. So that's on both sides, mm -hmm. uh, Balmaha and the east, and then Rostu and the, the west side. Yeah. Squirrels, Matt? Yes. So, by the late 18th century, destruction of forests and several consecutive cold winters decreased the number of native red squirrels. They were reintroduced into Dalkeith around 1978. 19, God 1772 It's 200 years old Close, close uh, So yeah, that's kind of Midlothian way And they managed to spread to both the west and east So the log by the 1830s Population massively increased over 30 years And then loads of them were trapped and killed Because they were damaging lesser states And then, yeah, in the 1900s The North American grey squirrel was introduced at Finnert and Loch Long and then it made its way to Arica and then down to all the way to the Vale of Leaven by uh, 1912. So, what, 30 years yeah. to go? The lesser states have a bit to answer for in terms of animal extermination. There's oh, no reason that they, they had quite a lot to do with the, the initial extinction of the osprey. As oh, well. really? Yeah. Um, but I, do you want to just wind back here, Matt? We can go around yeah. that route we're supposed to go around in the first place. Um, oh, no, I don't know, that bridge isn't open, I don't think. No, but the other one in front of Aye. it? Aye. 
Um, so Matt, um, on to, um, oh no ah. sorry, we have a little bit to talk about the grey squirrel don't we? Yeah, sorry, um, aye, so that was uh, the, re yeah, the reason that grey squirrels were able to move from Loch Long was because of the broadleaf trees and the carnivorous trees which were more suited to grey squirrels. Yeah, and I think the, um, yeah, the red squirrel can only survive in a certain type of habitat, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, on to bats, which I've um, just kind of noted the entertaining names here, really, but their three known species for a while were the pipistrelle, brown long-eared and Dobbinton's bats, before improved conservation projects led to the discovery of the fun-named natterers, whiskered and soprano bat in the area. Nice. Uh, I googled some of them, um, so that you didn't have to. Um, I don't know about you, but I always find bats a bit scary to look at their faces. But Yeah, they're quite cool when they're flying though. Like, yeah. I, again, I get them a lot in my back garden and you just see them right, right, right. scooting across and then into the trees. Yeah. Well, um, I thought that the Piper's Trail, the Brown Long Ear and the Dobbintons were all um, fairly cute. They were just kind of little balls of fluff <laughs> and um, one of them had really long ears. Um, the other three were a bit scary, if I'm being completely honest. They looked a bit creepy. Their faces were ugly. I don't want to kind of shame anyone, but um, they, I just... Bats are ugly. I wouldn't really recommend them. You've put here mice and rats, Matt. What, is, yeah. what do you want to talk about mice and rats? What would I like to say? So, <laughs> uh, apparently the house mouse has been around house since mouse. the house mouse, yeah. Maybe another... Another well, great band name. Yeah, maybe a DJ. Yeah. So, yeah, house mouse has been around since Roman times um, and it's the longest established alien species, but they're only found where humans are. And I think one of the reasons there's a less numbers of house mice the house mouse house mice house mice <laughs> was due to the gradual depopulation of the highlands because there's no one there then the mice can't really survive right. and then the rat stuff's quite interesting so apparently the, the black rat rats around here man there right? is a hell of a lot of rats <laughs> uh, the black rat was introduced to Britain in 12th century by crusaders returning from the holy wars so the crusaders should have just stayed at home and not bothered their fucking they arse they shouldn't have been went in their flaming self-righteous slaughtering spree Apparently the black rat was unable to compete with the brown rat which had invaded Loch Lomond between 1810 and 1815, about 80 years after being introduced to Britain. And the Scotch rat, has, as the book I read this from is quite old, but it said the Scotch rat has disappeared but was only found around the Clyde Docks. Right, so if you want to see a Scotch rat you need to go to Clyde Docks? Yeah, pretty much. And that's probably one of the few reasons you'd go there. Yes. What about the brown rat, Matt? Brown rat was brought up uh, the river Leaven by boats, so it was boats transporting coal right. up the river Leaven, but then, you know, the railway was introduced and this was no longer yeah. necessary. And, uh, yeah, why don't we move on to foxes, stoats, badgers and cats? Yes. Um, so foxes, um, well, they were sort of persecuted for centuries, yeah. right? Because they're, they're infamous for killing of uh, uh, livestock and whatnot. So are humans, why were they not persecuted? No idea why there are people not out in red coats shooting humans <laughs> on horses, am I right? Maybe, maybe we can start that, yeah. So, um, and the pine martin and polecat were also extensively trapped due to their predatory nature regarding poultry and game, and both were driven from Loch Lomond uh, by the late 19th century. And I've put here some descriptions of what they look like, Matt. Yep. And I've said that the pine martin looks a bit like a weasel, and the polecat, um, which I thought would look like a wild cat, but it's a completely different thing than the polecat. It uh, looks a bit like a pine martin that's let itself go a bit. So, so a fat weasel. You're really not uh, 
Well, I guess you are actually being quite descriptive. It's just... Well, you know what a weasel looks like? Oh, yeah. You know exactly what they look like. Are we, are we going to tell one of those stories now? Because that's uh, the weasel. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Let's... Right. Um, would you like to tell the story about the mink and the Pringles tube? Yeah, I think it was a weasel. I, oh, it was a weasel? I got it confirmed that it was a weasel. So... Good investigative journalism for you there, Matt. Yes. Uh, there is someone that both John Luca and I know who was kind of, he wasn't really a groundskeeper, but he was doing groundskeeper work. He's just kind of a, a jack of all trades. <laughs> and uh, he... A fairly erratic individual. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty bushed. So he had caught a, a weasel and he was looking to get it taxidermied as, <laughs> to give to someone as a present, which <laughs> in itself is fucking insane. <laughs> anyway, he... Uh, couldn't find a taxidermist, so if there's anyone living near the Vale of Leaving and they're kind of wanting a career change, I think taxidermy might be something to look into. Alongside it's a mole catching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two in one. Yeah. Like, you're making your own product <laughs> to sell. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll have a monopoly over all of the Yeah, business. exactly. It's a really open market. So he tried to do this, failed, but then for his birthday, <laughs> a few months later, another one of our friends had bought him as a joke because he was meant to receive the weasel as a, a gift so instead of person two receiving a weasel as a gift why don't we give them code names yeah well I don't know I'm, well, let's call them Bravel and Bam <laughs> okay so Bam bought Bravel what he thought was a taxidermied weasel and it arrived did you not order on Amazon yeah I like? no, I think it was eBay <laughs> so I bought this thing off eBay and it arrived in a Pringles tube and it just turned out to be a dead fucking weasel it hadn't been just enough there was flies in the, the Pringles tube and everything so did he send it back I don't know I, I, surely you don't send that back you just put it in the fucking bin like I, I don't know what happened to it but that's one, and then I've got a dear story for later on, but we'll... we'll yeah, get, we'll, we'll come that later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> featuring the same people? One of the same people. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo has been featured again. Uh, aye, well, uh, there you go. Um, in case you didn't know, you can, in fact, order on eBay um, a, min- a dead weasel in a tube. A Pringles tube? In a Pringles tube. Um, it's not been stuffed. It's not been stuffed. An untaxidermied weasel. Um, so... On the subject of weasels, that's a good insult. Stoughton weasel populations increased with the introduction of brown rats and rabbits, including in moorland where dry stone walls could provide cover. The stoat population, also impacted by the myxomatosis of rabbits, um, uh, they were also impacted, but they appeared uh, to be more common uh, than the rabbit. Have you ever came across a stoat? I don't know what it looks like, so I couldn't tell you. In my head, it's like a fat sort of beaver type thing. Right, so everything's either. Oh, a do you know what? No, it's not. It's a, it's a weasel. Is it, is it's that, more like a weasel. Is that a weasel? Yeah, I think. Um, maybe I'll Google that after. Badgers next? Is that? It's badgers, I believe, yeah. Which, because, um, yeah, there's, we're talking here about the impact of Queen Victoria on the badger. F- did we touch on that in the last episode? It's just about kind of the resurgence yeah. of Highland dress. Yeah, and because of her, basically. Um, you know, a typically positive impact from the monarchy, um, also impacting the the, the badger, which was um, basically murdered quite a bit because it was a good bit of Highland regalia, wasn't it? Yeah, so you'd put the badger fur on your sporing, which goes over your kilt. It's like a wee pocket. Yeah. A pouch. A wee pouch. Let's, um, 
Yeah, but in uh, in Loch Lomond, badgers were protected. In 1970, a request was made to estate owners. Um, at the time, there was a minimum of 27 sets. Does that mean that there's, what, 54 individual badgers? Um, yeah, maybe, all oh, right, okay, is that what that means? I think okay. that means, like, pairs. I'm going to assume. Right, I sets of badgers, right. Maybe small populations, I'm not sure. Um, before we talk about, about wildcats, um, let's cross this loud bridge. What a day, Matt. I know. I've really been uh, blessed. Oh, yeah, again, considering what the, the weather's been like this. Yeah. Way. Even this thing's fucking. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So, we are back up. We're up there? Aye, because that's those cabins. Mine's the first kind of turn in. Aye. Can I just walk down there? Aye, because I should at least be quiet down there. Aye. So uh, wildcats, Matt, they were gone locally by 1857, but um, we're still present at our garden where we are now, Ooh. and Lockhart in the late 1920s, and they came back to Loch Lomond from there. The wildcats benefited from World War II and declining game preservation? Yeah, I think there's quite a few different um, animals that benefited from both World War I and II because mm. there's no one there to kill them. There we go. Good for them. So. Um, I have um, also wondered what the Scottish wildcat looked like, I'd forgotten. I thought it looked a bit like a lynx, but it really doesn't. It looks like a really hairy, again, fat house cat. It's a wee bit longer as well, I think. Yeah. Did you say, like, 11 kilos? Though? One was killed near Rob Roy's cave in 1832, and um, it was said to weigh 11 kilos, I believe. So, the Scottish wildcat, it was once widely distributed across Great Britain but it's declined drastically since the turn of the 20th century due to habitat loss and persecution. It's now limited to the northern and eastern parts of Scotland, apparently. Uh, pine martens have been mentioned previously, yep. however. They, um, they've made more of a comeback in the area and they can be seen apparently roving around the woodlands north of Dumbarton as well as the south shore of Loch Lomond. Interesting. Yeah, this is quite a nice area. Yeah, um, the, is that Cabins Forest Retreat. Excellent. There might be like a trip or something here actually because there's quite a lot of cars mm. nice cabins maybe we can walk out to the slipway so moving on to deer next deer. this is where my next bravo story comes in good, good point so i think um i can't remember basically i was told this story i remember the initial one and then met a uh, bravo at a party a couple of months ago and was asking him uh, what the the story behind the pringles can was and then he was like oh well if you if you want something like that i've got an even better one it's like right Okay, give me this. I'd also, I'd written this down in my notes. And the next morning I'd woken up and I was like, oh, Bravo told me these stories. I thought it was like 11 o'clock at night and it turns out we'd been having this conversation at half seven in the evening. Um, so I'd imagine the chat probably went far downhill from there very quickly. Anyway, so I think there was a, a deer which had maybe like broken its leg or something, so it was probably fucked. And Bravo was on a quad bike and he uh, found the deer and there was somewhere he could go and hang it up but he had to obviously kill the deer first because you can't stick a live deer in the back of your quad bike probably more distressing yeah, yeah. Nah, so I think he went about killing it in a pretty gruesome manner 
Uh, she probably had, I mean, kind of to put out his misery. I'm well, yeah, it was going to die anyway, yeah. so it's like, uh, I think he maybe went about it with a stone bit, or like a big rock. Chucked it on the back of his, uh, on the back of his quad bike and was driving it to where he was going to drop off and he was driving past families and like waving at them whilst he had this dead deer on the back of his quad bike, which is weird enough, but it was like the folk were looking at me really, really strange. Well, kind of fair enough. Yeah, and, covered in blood. Yeah, they then gets back to where he was going and looked at himself in the mirror and he looked like fucking Patrick Bateman in an American Psycho, just head to toe, face covered in blood. Like you're fucking aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was my other story. Yeah, interesting. But, now that again, uh, well, that t- can we say where it took place? That was in. No, because that really narrows it down. Who is? Right. Well, it's a place we've mentioned before of colourful characters, anyway. Another interesting story about um, the real life experiences of animals and human interaction in this area. Shall we get back on? I don't know, yeah, I, was, I thought there was a slipway, Matt, but I'm struggling to find that. Unless it's through this gate, maybe, near the bottom. Hands hurting, cold again. Cold again. Ah, you should be alright. Um, oh, we actually haven't spoken of the facts of the deer yet, have we? Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to like, like, go back on track and talk about what we're actually meant to be talking about? Oh, sorry, you figuratively meant ah, back on track. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. Um, so you've said, said here, fallow deer introduced to Loch Lomond as early as the 14th century to provide sport and meat. Venison, in the agricultural reports of 1794 and 1812, state that about 450 occupied the deer park on um, Inchlin Egg and Inchmurn. Third fallow deer herd being um, introduced at Rostu towards the end of the 19th century after uh, Big Sir John Cahoon and four gamekeepers drowned whilst returning from hunting on Inchlin Egg. What goes around comes around, guys. Cheers. Cheesy peepskin, as they say. Yeah, with the break up of the deer parks, the number in the southern half of Loch Lomond did decrease. And there's some information here about the Jacobite Rebellion in 1745, Matt. Yes, yeah, so uh, following the 1745 rebellion, the numbers of red deer decreased by, uh, as the land was made uninhabitable by those uh, English people. Can't leave anything alone, can they? Mm, yeah, it's um, it's the colonisers for you, Matt. They, they burned down Rob Roy's house as well. It's just like, what do you think? Grow up. Grow up. Come on. You're not a big man. Um, the deer, Matt, were mainly uh, replaced by sheep. Yeah, which mm-hmm. again, I think, I don't know, would that be to do with the highland clearances as well and using yeah. sheep for Farming. monetary purposes and yeah. punting your tenants out? Yep. But the red deer from Glen Artney Forest near Callander began to re-establish themselves and move towards the Stirlingshire side of the loch. And they also benefited from a lack of gamekeepers during World War One, extending the range to just within 12 miles of Glasgow. Pretty close. Now, well, there was not then during the pandemic lockdown. There was not a deer wandering about the streets of I Glasgow. I think so. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Looking for a night out in the catty, perhaps. Uh, yeah, and World War Two had a similar impact. Apparently, numbers uh, by 1950 were around 1,200. Um, roe deer are found uh, on the wooded banks of the locks and they're still common in suitable conditions. I should also say at this point, Matt, there is a uh, non-native species of deer such as uh, the Japanese sika, I think, so, which were introduced yeah. for hunting, yeah. Um, and uh, there's, they're quite, there's a quite a healthy population of them around the area. The final animal, uh, well, mammal of our section here, Matt, is the wild goat. Yes. Um, so, the... Uh 
the wild goat, the, there was a herd of around 100 wild goats to the north of the loch, which apparently have a pedigree stretching all the way back to Robert the Bruce, but I think that's all the nonsense. Uh, it's more likely that the line of ancestry goes back to goats that were no longer used in high ground in summer for grazing. Right. Um, and then basically what happened was communal owners ended up abandoning them. And then around the same time on uh, Insulin Egg, the goats, wild goats were left to roam free, but uh, they were also killed because um, apparently they, they caused a lot of damage to the yew tree collection. So right. I think they're near just as I walked past a cabin with a, a topless man oh, lying in the couch. Is that why like, yeah. like you walked in a puddle? Well, I was looking in the living room, I just saw there was a random man who was tap after just lying in the, on his couch Fair um, it's Sunday as well yeah Sunday vibes um, I think the Mitchell book said that the wild goats were around Balmaha is that right yeah yeah. I think so yeah um, right Matt birds birds um, God, there was so much in that book again about birds I couldn't it was, process well just like so many names oh, so many different birds um, what do you know about birds generally, Matt? They fly. That's fly. <laughs> That's an important point. Yeah. They tend to fly. Uh, usually, use like have feathers. They have feathers. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, don't they? Uh, um, let's walk onto this beach. You see here, Matt, that birds split fairly accurately into upper and lower birds on the loch. Yes. So the upper parts of the loch tend to have usually rocky mountain slopes, which plunge steeply into the water, and the the lower parts are shallow. There's a lot of islands and variety of woodlands, moorlands, and wetlands. Yeah. But the lower parts suffer greatly from human interference. Saying that though, the islands usually don't have that many birds on them. Uh, most common is kind of Caper Cayley or uh, some of the islands, such as Inchmurn. Uh, have had osprey nests on them right. as well. One of the first facts I found out was that the swans, the scary ones that hang about uh, yeah, the Ballock Hotel, uh, they are called mute swans, I believe. Um, they're big, scary bastards, so watch yeah. out. Do you know the um, ones that are cygnets, which are the babies, once they get to like, you know, they come out grey? Swan children? Yeah, swan children. <laughs> the, the swan children, once they start to kind of turn white and lose their grey feathers, their parents just chase them away. Do they? Uh, sounds about right. They usually like that's... try and kill them. Oh, uh, fucking hell. I think they also do kill. They'll have like a large kind of number of children. They just one by I'll one. I'll kill them. Drown them. Jesus <laughs> Christ. That is so dark. Ah, yeah, no. So they end up, they maybe have like 10 and then they end up with not that many. Jesus, man. Survival of the fittest, eh? Well, that's literally. <laughs> yeah. Can you fight your own dad? If so, then you <laughs> it's like growing up in the veil. So John Mitchell says that. The only ducks in high numbers are goosender ducks. There's lots of others who've had their feeding and nursery areas obliterated by power crafts in the water. Lovely. Another influence in their decline was that bastard in mink. At it again. It's like the Brits. <laughs> exactly, Matt. Um, let's see how much of this we need to edit. Uh, Mandarin ducks. Now, I noticed, I think these have made a recent return. I've seen yeah. them in Ballock House a couple of times. Well, there was a guy that came up to my work the other day. Like, have you seen the Mandarin ducks? Over there. I'm Whilst not, your feet were covered in water, I've not actually seen. Looking them, at a duck right here, pal. I'm wading, wading enough as it is. Um, but yeah, they have fun mohawks. The mandarin ducks, they're quite. They do look quite nice, uh, colourful. They're, they're nice, eh? Mallard ducks are also pretty easy to spot around that same area. I've noticed. Um, some other impressive water birds include the the cormorant, the grey heron, and the osprey. I think we mentioned 
feet most of them already. The Osprey is definitely the most famous of Loch Lomond's fish-eating birds in the early 20th century. It was actually lost to Britain as a breeding species, harried by gamekeepers and collectors at it again. And um, However, 1954 marked um, the beginning of the recolonisation of the Highlands in Scotland, and by 1990 they were young reared in Loch Lomond's surrounding area, and they enjoy a pike, I've heard. God, they must be pretty aggressive if you're taking a pike. No, take a pike on, you're not fucking around. Um, other fun birds, no criteria for this other than just um, uh, gut reaction, include the barn owl and the common buzzard, both of which have made heartening recoveries in population size in their lowland habitats, despite the best efforts of our pal Harry to obliterate them with his car. Owls <laughs> um, love voles and buzzards, love rabbits apparently. Um, but eating them, not like hanging about them. In the Oaklands of Loch Lomond, the ton, tawny owl is the most common bird of prey, if you're interested. Um, and also another impressive bird which is, kind of has tradition in the area is the red kite, um, which could make a comeback to the area after a successful small reintroduction in central Scotland. Actually, you drive past that red kite sanctuary, I think, as you come in. Uh, um, where's the place with the pumpkin patch? Oh, out past, like, um Aye, I know what you're talking about, I can't remember. Uh, it's near... near it's like, in the way uh, of Stirling yeah, from Ballock, yeah. Aye, I can't Bampire remember. Or something there yeah. I think somewhere there. Aye, somewhere near there. Apparently the ornithologist focus in the lowland Loch Lomond area though is the rook, which as far as I'm aware is just a bird with black feathers. Um, but it has a distinguishable white face, I believe. Interesting. Would you like to... We don't have much else here, but we have some stuff on here on upper Loch birds. Man, yeah, so um, probably should have had that where I was talking about upper loch birds, but who cares? Uh, so they're kind of categorised, like subcategorised into where they live. So there's uh, mountain birds, which are on most peaks at the head of the loch. So these include golden eagles, ptarmigans, and peregrine falcons. Mm -hmm. In the moorlands, above the tree line, an example of this is like above the tree line in Glenfalloch. Right. Uh, there's black and red grouse plus short and short-eared owl in the woodlands Glen Fallox is again another example of this there's uh, buzzards and a, a wood warbler okay. and uh, the waterside habits um, are home to dippers in the summer and red and black-throated divers and you don't get many fowl because of the, the depth right. um, and then lower loch birds in the mountains we have things such as ptarmigans, ravens and buzzards should be said as well the book categorised I put Ben Lomond into this category right, because right, right. you access it from the uh, yeah. the south. I don't know if that makes sense, but who am I to argue? Yeah, and woodland birds include uh, in the parklands and private estates, the capper Cayley, again the buzzards and the warblers, and uh, you've got your waterside ospreys, the islands and their cormorants and the islets near Luss, and you've got your uh, wetland whooper swans, grey lag goose, Greenland white fronted goose. And there's also, you said, a heron. Which, yeah, it's in the river leaving. Pass yeah. it all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's ugly, but it's... <laughs> there you go. Yeah, might have a great personality, though. <laughs> um, and uh, we've left uh, um, the best for near last. Obviously, we have our small section here on serpents, as you know, as a recurring theme in this podcast. Now, I found out that adders are apparently uh, in Loch Lomond, um, and they are only left on the island of Inchlinaig after being exterminated from Inchtavanic and Inchconican. Apparently their dark zigzag back feature can be missed sometimes, leading to confusion with the common grass snake, which is probably a dangerous confusion, as the adder is poisonous and the grass snake is not. So if you ever come into contact with an adder, Don't exercise caution. Yeah. 
David will be absolutely shitting himself for that news, <laughs> pal Dev. Um, on that topic, um, we've talked before about our friends' interactions with uh, our responses to stories of tropical pythons in the area. Um, we've covered this more, I think we were talking quite a lot about um, medieval was, kingdoms and stuff, weren't we? was episode four that we talked about. The, uh... the uh, medieval square go, we did describe... Um, quite a bit about um, uh, escaped tropical pythons so go back to that if you're interested uh, from Greenock and Bonhill there were some interesting tales including um, uh, unspent drug debts uh, or, or un- un- uh, unreturned drug debts and other uh, zoo um, closures and whatnot. Um, anyway um, those are the tropical python stories the last wee bit we've got to mention here we haven't mentioned the fur death Funga and uh, I'm just going to quickly say the larger fungi of Loch Lomond side, Oak Woodlands, they're not well documented except for around the southeastern corner of the loch. Here in the mainland and several of the islands, uh, about 400 of the British um, macro species have been recorded. A significant number of them reflecting the southwestern element of British fungi flora. It's, an, it's confusing that it's called fungi flora. Um, representatives of this groom, group include a number of mushrooms with difficult to pronounce Latin names. And the Death Cap. That's all, that's also probably a good death metal band name. Death Cap. Death Cap. So watch out for the Death Caps. Um, the most poisonous of all British toadstools, Matt. Anything? What about mushrooms of the magic variety? Would you find them around here? Apparently, you do find. Um, I don't know where, but yeah. apparently they're quite common to come across. So the more intrepid. Going, yeah, if you're going adventurous. foraging, then you, you know you might. Yeah come across that and there are like foraging walks in Ballot Park now I tried to like get involved in that but I kind of missed the the boat on it a little bit but yeah if you're interested in foraging uh, there's stuff to be done around there and around the area in general uh, I'd like to learn more about that personally I'll leave that for the summer months perhaps yeah we can revisit this yeah well Matt and I uh, look out onto Loch Long the bay uh, with the mountains behind us uh, the cobbler and whatnot and the man and the topless man in his living room. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll be coming coming at you with more material uh, soon. Uh, Matt, would you like to say anything else? No. Once we got past the plants there, I actually found that quite fun. Yeah. But uh, the plants was tough Aye. going to begin with. There's enough we were able to kind of riff around the plants. Well, I hope folk managed to make it past the plant section. Good on you if you've survived this long. Um, but there's more interesting tales to tell of the area and we hope you stay tuned. Thanks.